We are starting a new series uh, through the Gospel of Mark today, and that's going to be what we're looking at uh, for the next several Sundays. And I really want to personally encourage you to, uh, yeah, on your own during the week, to crack open your Bibles to uh, Mark and to follow along with us and to read ahead, to to review some of the things that we talk about. And, um, you know, we don't get a chance to go over every single verse in Mark, so um, I think you'll find it very helpful uh, to personally make at least part of your Bible scripture reading uh, during the next several weeks through uh, this gospel. Have you ever seen a picture on whatever your favorite brand of social media is, whether it's some kind of food or some majestic sunset on the beach, to make that your goal of traveling there or going to eat there, and then only to be disappointed. Your expectations were so much higher. And part of uh, it is that these filters today, right, are to blame, right? If we would only follow all the no filter hashtags, we'd probably have a better chance of not being disappointed. Our Expectations sometimes are high, sometimes they're impossible to meet, the colors, the beauty, the majesty that's portrayed. Sometimes they're not that high and still we go through life often disappointed. The reason why I briefly share this is we get to this Gospel of Mark and in a way it's very different from say Matthew. Mark doesn't spend any time talking about the birth of Jesus. He jumps right in to the story, and he, it's almost like he hits the ground running with what he wants to talk about. And in verse one, I feel like right away, and this was a common thing to do back then, he tells us maybe what we could even call the title of his work, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, back then and also today, when you hear a title like Son of God, or maybe King of all creation, King of the world, King of all mankind, when you hear titles like this, you immediately have certain expectations, expectations of what kind of life they would live and what kind of person they would be. If you hear the title Son of God and you say, look, here is the Son of God, this must be the type of existence he has, and then you hear the story of Jesus Christ and you would think, you know what, how can the Son of God live the life that he did? Right? And so from the very beginning, Mark is going to tell us the story of Christ, but from the very beginning, from the very first few words in his gospel, he's going to remind us even though his life may not meet your expectations, right? Because think about it. If you were were Jewish back then and you had been waiting for the Messiah, you'd been waiting for the Savior, and you'd been waiting for the King to establish his kingdom on earth, you probably had a certain set of expectations, a throne that would exist on earth and the powers that would come with that throne. If you were foreign to Jewish culture and tradition, maybe you were Greek, 
You had a certain set of expectations because of the philosophies that you, you followed and were taught. And the idea of the Son of God dying on a cross, the ultimate symbol of shame, it was ridiculous. A stumbling block to your faith. To anyone who would hear the, this story and this gospel, Mark is saying, no, put aside your expectations. He is the king. He is the son of God. And I want to invite you on this journey because even when you look at our logo, right, you think of king, you think of a crown with jewels and gold, uh, whatever it is, and colorful. Well, the crown of Jesus was very different. The life of this king was very different. And we're going to look at that and what that means for us in the next several weeks. Well, in verse 14, where we're going to jump in today, we see the, 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 the end of maybe one person's ministry coinciding with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You have the arrest of John the Baptist, and you have Jesus beginning his public proclamation, preaching, coming of the kingdom, teachings. And James Edwards, he has a great quote. I thought it was really interesting. The arrest of John and the beginning of Jesus' ministry are intentionally correlated to show that the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and suffering, not in ease and comfort. So the message that Jesus brings not only comes to people who are suffering, but even the servants of this gospel message will know adversity and suffering. And so right away, if you had any expectations for this kingdom, maybe the foreshadowings and the things that Mark kind of brings to light from the very beginning will serve as a reminder of what he's going to talk about in the rest of his book. You have Jesus who proclaims the gospel of God. The gospel of God probably here is not referring to the gospel that is about God, right? A gospel concerning God. But what's more probable here is that it's the gospel that comes from God. It's the gospel that he owns. It's the gospel that he brings. It's the gospel that he delivers. The good news. The content will be described shortly by Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Now, in the Greek, there's two common words that would be translated to our English word of time. There's the Greek word chronos and the Greek word kairos. In English, we just have one word for, for those two words, time. Well, chronos is talking about the moment by moment passing of time. Every day, time goes by. Kairos describes a particular moment in time that is significant, so important that it could even define what comes after it. Now, the word that Mark uses here, or I'm sorry, Jesus uses here, is the second one. The word that describes a really significant moment in history. R.C. Sprawl describes it in a way that I could, you know, probably can't, so instead of retrying it, I'll just put up his quote. He says, look, we've got an example in English where you take two words, historical and historic. 
historical, everything that happens is historical, right? Everything. But not everything that happens is historic. We reserve the word historic for events of great significance. For something to be considered historic, it has to be so important, so momentous, that it shapes history. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. The time. This historic moment. Everything's going to change. It's different now. It has arrived. The coming of the kingdom. Now, this kingdom that he talks about in a way, is not new at all, right? Because in the Old Testament, the people of God had already become a little bit familiar with this, had at least been introduced to this topic of the kingdom. And it just meant, look, God is the king. He reigns. He's the creator. So he is due all worship. He is due all glory. This isn't new. But why would Jesus say that the coming of the kingdom, it's arrived now when it was introduced already, many, many years earlier? Well, even for the Old Testament people of God, the kingdom of God and the concept of that kingdom was still incomplete. They were still waiting for a savior. And that savior meant for them a king who would come and rescue them. There was maybe an earthly component to this, this messianic component, like someone is going to come and save us, and this is the king, and he's going to reign, he's going to rule, and we're going to follow him. There's this waiting and anticipation. And Jesus says, it's at hand, at hand meaning near, but not near in terms of time, near in terms of location. It's here, right here, right near, you guys, because why? We know he's the king, right? Maybe to his listeners, it was a little bit um, confusing, maybe a little, a little vague. But for us, as we read the Gospels, we can understand him more and more. Um, as we read it. But one of the things that is interesting as he um, introduces this concept of, hey, there's this great momentous moment that's going to change everything. It's the coming of the kingdom of God. His, you know, the rule, it's in fact right here next to you guys. The first thing he says is repent and believe. Repent and believe. With the coming of the kingdom... One of the things that we'll notice, and I think it's very important for Mark, is that as the kingdom is introduced, as the reign of God is introduced and fleshed out, you have to take a stance on it. You can't be neutral. When Jesus says, look, here's the kingdom of God, here's the principles of this reign, here's the king of this kingdom, you can't be neutral and say, well, we're neither going to follow this king, we're neither going to be an enemy of this king, we're like, just, we're going to coexist and everything will be great. You have to take one side or the other. And if you're going to take the right side, he says, you have to repent, you have to confess your sins, right? You have to leave behind whatever king you are following that's a false king or a false god, and you have to believe in the things that I'm about to say and teach and promise to you, the principles of this kingdom. You've got to repent and believe. It's one way or the other way. Right? There's no neutral ground. And the way Mark tells this story, immediately he jumps from this 
to the Sea of Galilee, right? The Sea of Galilee, look. This was, hey, you wanted to Instagram something back then? You would Instagram the Sea of Galilee. It was beautiful, right? This deep blue body of water. It would really deep, unusually deep. Somewhere between 12 and 13 miles long, about seven miles wide. Beautiful rolling hills around it. Great, 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 great spot. And the thing that's amazing about the Sea of Galilee was that at this time of Christ, it was an extremely important body of water for the fishing industry. There were apparently tons of different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and they were caught, they were exported to all other places in the, uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And fish was the staple diet of that time. You didn't eat a lot of meat, you ate a lot of fish. Meat, maybe once a week. So for those of you who are carnivores, you would have had a different diet back then. One of the things that's very interesting is that fresh fish caught in the Sea of Galilee and delivered to the big city, Jerusalem, was considered a delicacy. You can see it right now if they had Yelp. Someone would say, fresh fish from Galilee. Can't beat it. Amazing. So fresh. Even if you lived far away from the Sea of Galilee, what the fishermen did back then and the industry there did was they would salt the fish and it would get shipped to all the different ends of that Roman Empire. This was like the fish in some ways that you wanted to have. And that salt fish industry was big business in Galilee, transporting it, I mean fishing it, catching it, you know, salting it and then transporting it to the various parts of the empire. It's big, big industry. And the reason why I spent a few minutes on this is think about James and John. They're fishermen here. They've got a boat already. They're in the right place at the right time. Now, I don't know how big they were, how small they were. I don't know if they were successful or not. But what we do know is they were where it mattered. If you want to be in the tech industry, in some ways, you move to Silicon Valley. If you want to be an actor or actress, you want to be in Hollywood, right? If you want to be a country artist, you go to Nashville. I don't know, whatever your industry is, there are certain regions and areas, and we say, this is where you want to go. Well, if you lived here at this point in time, and you wanted to be a fisherman, and you had big dreams of maybe taking one boat and making it two boats and three boats, and supporting your entire clan and your family, and having this very successful business, you go to the Sea of Galilee. They were there. Pursuing their dream. And in the midst of that pursuit, we see Jesus come to them. And he says, follow me. (laughs) Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I think it's important for us to consider, you know, the lives of these fishermen. Maybe we think they're losers or nobodies, or maybe we think they had nothing better to do with their lives than to just drop everything and follow this guy around for a few years and whatever he says, to just soak it up. You know what? I, I, I don't think it was like that. I think they were more similar to you and I than we'd like to admit. 
They were pursuing their dream, you guys. They were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know how far they had come in this dream, whether it was just starting, but with two words, Jesus changes their lives. Follow me. What's even more interesting is that when we read the Gospel of John, we're introduced to some information here that maybe would change our, I don't know, understanding of this, maybe? The two brothers, all right, Simon and Andrew, apparently they had met Christ before. When you read John chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, after John the Baptist baptizes them, we see that these brothers met Jesus. Not only did they meet him, but the language there in John 1 makes it seem pretty clear that they also wanted to follow Jesus. That there was something about Jesus that captured their hearts. But between that moment, the baptism of Jesus and their first introduction really to him, and the moment we have here in Mark chapter 1, whether it's a few months, several months, or a year, I've, heard, I've read different things, but I don't, I don't know if that's important or not. Whatever had happened and whatever had transpired, we see them now, and we, we don't have that information, but we see them now back at the, the Sea of Galilee fishing again. Right? And it could have been something as very simple as Jesus said, hey, go back and fish for a while. Or it could have been something like, Maybe they got introduced to Jesus and started following him, and then the, the lure of their dream took them back to the Sea of Galilee and their boat. I don't know, or maybe it's somewhere in between. We don't know. But this is not their first introduction to Christ. So it's not like they first, this is a, a man that they've never seen or a rabbi that they've never seen, and he's like, follow me, and they're like, okay. <laughs> We're going to follow Christ. That's our life now. I don't know, I thought that was kind of... Anyways. Maybe they had time to think. Maybe they had time to decide. Or maybe like you and I, they were just in the middle of their lives. They weren't making a decision for one way or the other way. They were just going day by day. And before they knew it, it was a month two months, I don't know. But what's clear is, at this moment, Jesus leaves no doubt as to what he desires from them. There's no doubt about it. He doesn't ask for a little bit of their time. He doesn't ask for a portion of their lives. He doesn't ask for some kind of you know, synergy moment where, hey, why don't you do this Monday through Thursday and then Friday through Sunday, the weekends, let's do this. He says, follow me. Now back then, discipleship was not an uncommon thing, but it would be done very differently from how Jesus would do it with his disciples. You know, back then it was like, 
If you were a rabbi and you were known and you were established, the higher sort of your prestige was, then the more that younger people wanted to be your disciples. And to become your disciples, they had to prove themselves worthy, whether it's through testing or whatever it is, uh, gaining knowledge or experience. But from that pool, you would be, you know, kind of, you would, you would earn sort of a chance to be someone's disciple. Jesus does it the other way, right? Instead of uh, him throwing out like, like a college entrance exam and him saying, all right, let's see which one of you guys are uh, able and fit and faithful. He personally goes to these four men where they are in their lives, wherever they are in their pursuits, and he calls them to drop those things, to leave those things, and to follow him. And I think the way Mark tells it, now part of it is I think he's a man and and a writer of action. He skips a lot of details, but I think some of it may be purposeful. Maybe what Mark is trying to highlight is that this calling involved risk. Even if they knew who Jesus was, even if they met him before, even though John the Baptist said, look, this is the guy you've got to follow, even if John the Baptist was saying, look, I'm nobody compared to him, this is the one you must follow, it still involved something risky and difficult. Maybe not quite what you would expect from following the Son of God or the King. Not only does Jesus call them personally, he calls them to this life of sort of traveling and wandering. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't use the word wandering because there was a very purposeful traveling, but Jesus' ministry would involve going from town to town and place to place, and along those journeys and in those places, he would show his disciples things. He would demonstrate to them, and he would teach them things. And this journey wasn't easy, right? We see the process that they're taken on. They're humbled. They're rebuked. Their eyes are opened, and still at times we're surprised at how little they seem to grasp. In a way, their lives are encouraging to us because we can relate to their faith. We can relate to their mindset and their understanding and even their hopes and dreams and goals of of what they wanted from the king, what they wanted from a rabbi, what they wanted from the man that they said, all right, we're dropping our nets. We're leaving our father on this boat. We'll come follow you. Because the call of Christ was not this call of like, hey, here's the life. You follow me and you will enjoy this and that. I mean, you want stuff to put on social media? Well, here it is. You're going to have the life that everyone is jealous of. Instead, he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He throws it out from the very beginning, this calling to serve, this purpose that they're going to have in life. You know, I've I've gone fishing only twice. Anyone here fish less than twice? Oh, April's the only one who's fished less than twice. Now, I, you know, I hesitate to use the word even fishing for what I was doing. The first trip, I didn't do anything. 
the guy would do everything. You know, literally everything until the, the line started spinning. And then he would even get it and then, and then he would hand it to me. And for a few minutes, I would just, you know, spin as hard and fast as I could. And he kept saying, yeah, you gotta, you know, you can't just not, and he was trying to teach me. I didn't know anything. I'm just like, and in like 15 seconds, my forearms felt like they were gonna explode. That was my first fishing trip. My second fishing trip was really uneventful. The most exciting thing about that trip was putting the bait on the fish, on, on, on the hook, right? Without trying to um, stab myself with the hook. And really, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know if fishing is for me. It requires so much patience, so much like sitting there and hoping, so much doing the same thing over and over and over again without seeing any results. And I was like, this is just, this is like, you know, I don't know why people like this. Now, I'll admit that if someone who knew what they were doing has said to me, Sam, I will make you become a fisherman. I'm going to show you the ropes. We're going to learn together. I'll teach you everything I know. I think it would have been different. And what's very interesting here is that Jesus makes it clear to these men that he will be the one to lead them. He will be the one to show them. He will be the one to transform them from fishers of fish to fishers of men. And with that promise, he, it's, it's almost like he's saying, look, the expectations may be different, but this is even better. Better than what you thought, better than what you imagined, better than anything you could have dreamed of. Call to serve. And it's a call to live life with this great, great purpose and calling. You know, up to this point in time, for a lot of people, being part of the kingdom of God meant like, hey, what are God's rules? What are his statutes? What are his expectations? What will make God happy? And, and, and let's follow it. Let's walk according to his way. Let's live it. Let's not be unrighteous people. Let's not be heathens. Let's not do this. Let's not do that. Let's do this. And the trouble, and, and there's nothing wrong with that thought, but the problem became when you would begin to trust in that process. And when you begin to say, you know what? If I do these things, then God owes me this. If I do enough of this, then God should be happy and reward me with this. And into that sort of environment, Christ comes and he says something very different. He doesn't say, hey, here's the Ten Commandments and here's the rules. Now, Christ doesn't abolish the rules. No way. But his calling to these men is very clear. He says, follow me himself. And for a few years, he would live and walk with them and teach them and show them day by day what it meant 
to be part of his kingdom. So for you and I today, I think there's some really important reminders. First of all, I think we're reminded that there is no middle ground when it comes to the gospel. You can't make a neutral decision. It's not about how much you can tolerate what you like, what you don't like. It's about will you repent and believe and follow Christ or will you suffer the judgment of God? There's literally two options. And Christ comes and he says, this is that moment and it changes the history of mankind. This is the time the kingdom has come. It is here. Repent and believe. And then for those who would repent and believe and become a part of his kingdom, he says, look, this life is about following him. The servant king. This doesn't mean we're all here to throw aside our nets. So if you're a programmer, you throw your MacBook away. If you're an artist, you throw away your, I don't know, easel. <laughs> Whatever, I, don't know. I guess even if you're an artist, you probably use a computer. Uh, again, MacBook. If you're an accountant, you throw away your calculator. Actually, again, computer, throw that away again. And we're, we're going to, you know, leave it all behind. We're going to leave our parents. We're going to leave our brothers and sisters. What this means is that, you know what, where, where we are today in our lives, what is it that we're following? What is it that we're pursuing? What is it that we're living for? Who are we following? Who or what are we disciples of? It's a short question, but it's a difficult one to answer. For many of us, we've already made the right decision, but we're in that process of being humbled, of being taught, of being shaped and transformed by the gospel of Christ. And sometimes we find ourselves far away from where we want to be. Sometimes we're closer. For those of us who are in this process, I want to encourage you that for the next several weeks, let's be reminded again of what it means to follow the servant king and to serve him, to be a fisher of men. What it means to live with that better purpose. Maybe you and I, we look at our lives and we say, this is not what I thought it would be like. If I accepted Christ and if I changed and if I said yes to you, that this would have taken care of so many things and we're finding that maybe it's not what we thought it would be. If that's where you are, I just want to remind you once again that it's even better being a fisher of men. Better than the philosophies or pursuits of this world. And the fact that Christ took a crown of thorns is that moment in our history of mankind and the world 
that changed everything afterwards. Amen? And maybe during the next few weeks, we could be reminded of this gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear and see your call to the fishermen there back then on the Sea of Galilee, and and you simply said to them to follow you. But we're also reminded that you give the same call to us, to follow you, to live for your gospel, to live according to your kingdom, to recognize and realize that you are here, that your reign is here, and that it's even better than maybe what we had hoped for. Dearly Father, we're on this journey, and it's a struggle for a lot of us, Lord. So we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We ask for you to cover up all of our weaknesses and all of our iniquities and guide us, Lord, day by day. Pray these things in Jesus' name.